in the 90s, um, there was a particular quiz show, puzzle show, that I was a big fan of, The Crystal Maze. Anyone watch The Crystal Maze? Um, it's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it could have been a really bad idea. It could have been a really bad idea to try to reboot that TV show uh, and bring it back onto Channel 4 again with a brand new host. That could have been a disaster. Uh, Channel 4 have tried that this year, but I think it's been a, a great success uh, because instead of the former weird funny man, uh, Richard O'Brien, as the host, they now have the new weird funny man, uh, uh, Richard Adwai, uh, who I think is, does deadpan humour like no other, uh, and he's a brilliant guide for the contestants as they go through the crystal maze, as they go in through the different zones, as they go into the Aztec zone and the medieval zone and the industrial zone and the future zone, um, and they have to play these, take on these challenges Challenges of, of skill, mental, physical challenges, all with the aim of winning a crystal. And more, the more crystals they get, the more time in the final challenge at the end uh, in the crystal dome to collect those tokens that are floating around uh, in the air. Uh, so the game, the game's very simple. Uh, part of the attraction is you think, I could do that. I could do that. But one of the unique features of the show, I think, um, is when a contestant is put into the room for their particular challenge, normally the rest of their teammates are allowed to shout in instructions, advice, and encouragement to them. But the problem often in that scenario is that the instructions, advice, and encouragement that they give are often conflicting and contradictory. Uh, and very often you will see the contestant go about their challenge, listening to the advice of their teammates, and you can see the panic start to rise in their face as the clock is ticking and they don't know who they should listen to. They don't know which advice is best, which instructions are correct. Well, I want to suggest that actually that's the scenario, that's the dilemma that each and every one of us faces in our daily lives. We are surrounded by voices, voices telling us what we should do, how we should live our lives. Uh, our peers, our family, the media, our culture generally, all shouting at us, telling what we should do, what is best, uh, how we should live our lives. And part of the big challenge we all face, the big question we all face is, who should I listen to and which voice should I heed who should I listen to and which voice uh, should I heed? Well, what we have in this passage and in this whole book is the Lord Jesus speaks to John. He hears a voice. He hears a voice. A voice commanding his attention. But the big question is, is it a voice worth listening to? Is it a voice worth listening to? Well, as John this morning hears a voice... He turns to see a vision, and the vision convinces him. And if we're listening carefully, I hope will convince all of us that this is a voice worth listening to. This is a voice worth listening to. This is a voice that should drown out all other voices, a voice that should command uh, our attention. Um, 
We are in, we've just begun a little series in the book of, uh, of Revelation in the first few chapters. We're going to go through some of these postcards from Jesus in chapter 2 and 3. But before we do that, we need to know who's speaking these and who's writing these postcards. Whose voice do we hear and is it worth listening to? Uh, I, I said last week that John was speaking to uh, a group of Christians uh, in the first century in Asia Minor in the the province, the Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, and these are Christians that are under real pressure. They're really suffering quite intensely. The letter's probably written towards the end of the 80s, early 90s in the first century, uh, either the reign of, of uh, Nero or the reign of Domitian. Either way, either way, uh, Christians are facing intense persecution. There's a real, real threat to their livelihood, to their freedom and to their very lives. These are Christians under, under pressure. Uh, and yet we're told here that God gives this wonderful vision, the vision of the whole book, really, to, to John. Uh, and in many ways, it's, it's, well, it is called a revelation because in many ways what it does is it pulls back the curtain and sh- gives his readers, and us today as we eavesdrop on this conversation and this vision, as it pulls back the curtain, God shows a glimpse of spiritual realities that are normally hidden from view. Spiritual realities that have taken to heart and understood and seen clearly will actually give these suffering Christians perspective on their troubles. And we saw last week that John with this vision given to him by the Lord Jesus, uh, showed God on the throne. Nothing is out of control. God is in control perfectly from the beginning to the end. God is ruling presently. We also learned last week that Jesus in the past has rescued us. He has demonstrated his love and commitment to us supremely in the person and the work uh, of the Lord Jesus. And one day in the future, he will return again to set everything right, to set everything right. If you can see that perspective on the present and the past and the future, that will give you a right perspective uh, on your present troubles. So this is a letter that's just as relevant to us in uh, our modern 21st century as it was to these struggling believers back in first century uh, Asia Minor. John sees this vision um, of Jesus, and it convinces him that this is really a voice worth listening to. And the question I would just want to, or the answer I want to explore in the, the rest of this uh, little section and my time with you, is why is the voice of Jesus a voice worth listening to? Why? Why? Three reasons, very simply, why Jesus' voice is a voice worth listening to. Because he is the Lord of all. Second, he's the Lord of death. And third, he's the Lord of the church. Now, my first, the first reason there will be longer than the other two, so don't panic when I take a long time over that one. But let's dive in and see what uh, this vision teaches us. First, we see that Jesus' voice is worth listening to because he is the Lord of all I, John, verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance. 
John is not remote or detached from these other suffering Christians. He's right there in the trenches with them. Um, That is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony uh, of Jesus. John, because of his preaching and teaching, has put himself in harm's way, and he finds himself on the prison colony of Patmos, uh, possibly uh, laboring in the mines, we don't know, but definitely there because he was a leader and a preacher uh, of the Christian message. Um, Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The Lord's day, probably a reference to Sunday. Uh, Christians from the very, very earliest days uh, worshipped on resurrection day, the first day of the week, Sunday, uh, which they called the Lord's day. And he was worshipping, he's in the spirit, probably worshipping, deeply conscious of of God and his goodness. Uh, And he gets something unexpected happen to him. He hears this voice uh, of Jesus, we find out. Um, But is this a voice worth listening to? He turns, and this is what he sees then in verses 12 to 16. He turns Uh, and sees this amazing vision. Now, the first thing I need to say about this vision that he receives is that it is not, this is not a photograph, okay? You need to get this. This is not a photograph. If somehow you could smuggle a camera into heaven and take a picture of the risen Lord Jesus in the flesh this morning you would not see this, okay? You would not see this. Uh, As I suggested last week, the the book of Revelation is written in a a style that we're actually not very used to. It was called apocalyptic literature, lots of symbolic descriptions that you have to decode uh, in some ways. Uh, I suggested last week it's a little bit like a political cartoon, If you've ever seen the broadsheet newspapers, you'll see the political cartoon, the famous people drawn in the picture uh, with their exaggerated proportions, uh, common symbols like flags and so on. Here's one example that I came across this week. There's two pictures of Theresa May standing beside a dog at the beginning of a race, and she's holding the starter pistol in her hand. Uh, The dog is draped in a union flag. That's a big clue. Uh, And then she says, on your marks, get set, go, and shoots the dog rather than uh, just starting the race with the pistol. What is going on there? What is that all about? Well, if you decode that, and there's lots of clues in there as to what it means, the dog represents the British bulldog, the British bulldog. If you realize then that... uh, that the go is a reference to Brexit, then the message of the cartoon becomes really clear. Brexit will be a disaster for the UK. It could be fatal for the UK. Now, that is not my political view. I'm just saying that is the message of this cartoon, okay? And so the question then is, how do we decode this image that we see here with all its symbolic components to it? Well, there's two ways. Um, 
You're not left guessing. It's not there to puzzle you. Uh, there's two ways to decode the message. Uh, we decode the message by looking at any clues in the book itself and then by looking for clues from the Old Testament. So you're not left guessing. So just glance, if you've got your Bible open, uh, glance down to the very last sentence of the chapter. Here's the first clue from inside the book as to what the message of the vision is. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the churches. This is a a symbol for that. Okay? It's not a photograph. And so in this case, we'll come to this in a minute, the first thing you're told is lampstands represent the churches. But then, of course, if you uh, look back then at sentence number 13, where we're told about lampstands, you'll see that there's another way that you, another another set of clues that you need to, to read and check out to get the message uh, of, of the picture here. Uh, and that is from the Old Testament. So if you look at sentence number 13, um, you're told, and among the lampstands was someone, quote, like a son of man. And then you'll see there's a little B beside that, if you've got the same version of the Bible I've got, the NIV. And at the bottom of the page, there's a, a footnote saying, by the way, you should probably check out Daniel chapter 7, if you're to understand what's been referred to here. And again, that's common for how we're to understand the book of Revelation. It's a bit like the punchline of the Bible. You've got to hear the first part of the joke if you're going to get the punchline. And so here, we've got a reference to uh, the same language used in Daniel 7. Let me read the reference to you, Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, verse 13, we're told, One like the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence, and he, that is the Son of Man, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel sees this vision of a son of man, one who looks like a human being, but who seems to be more than that. And he approaches the ancient of days, uh, God the Father on the throne of heaven, and he is given power and authority over all the nations forever. This is more than just a normal man. This mysterious figure is identified, if you read, read the Gospels, If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can't help but spot, if you read them carefully, that over 69 times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So for example, in in Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The point's clear. I am the son of man. I am that figure predicted by Daniel. And what we have in this vision now, God gives, Dan, or God, God gives John a vision using exactly the same imagery that he gave to Daniel. 
the point is really, really clear. Jesus is that Son of Man. Just to remove all doubt, Jesus is that Son of Man. He is now the world ruler. That's who he is. And I see if you read a little bit around uh, in chapter 7 and chapter 10 in Daniel, you'll see that some of the imagery used of God is actually used of Jesus. The, the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 is described as having snow white hair. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, Jesus here, that, that imagery is applied to him. Um, we see the same language then used. Uh, Jesus himself claims to be the first and the last, in a direct echo of God in last week we heard, been described as the Alpha and the Omega. The point is really, really clear, John is making in his vision, uh, through, or God is making in this vision given to John, is that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one who shares in the eternal divine authority of God. That's who he is. And if you're to make decisions clearly, even in the midst of your troubles, you need to remember that. You need to remember that. That is who Jesus is. Again, this is not uh, a photograph. This is a symbolic image where each of the, the symbols tell you something true about Jesus, even if you're not meant to draw a picture of it. Um, we're given uh, seven descriptions of Jesus. First, we're told that he has white hair. He has white hair. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Now, we live in a culture that is obsessed, that is obsessed with youth and beauty. And so... Um, Anti-aging creams and hair dye and cosmetic surgery, that is big business in our culture, isn't it? But the Greeks and the Romans saw things very differently. They, they actually didn't necessarily prize youth and beauty, although they, they didn't hate it. But what they really valued was wisdom, experience. And so they viewed gray hair gray hair, uh, increasingly my experience, uh, as, as a sign of honor and respect. It's a sign of the wisdom that you have gained. And so God is pictured here as the one who has snow white hair. Perfect wisdom. The experience of the eternal God. And what you're meant to see is that Jesus shares that divine perfect wisdom. He's got white hair. Second, his eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes are like blazing fire. He sees past all the pretense, all the hypocrisy. He sees right past all the facade and sees the thoughts and attitudes of each of our hearts. We're exposed before him. There's no, no point trying to hide before him. He sees all. He sees everything. That's a negative thing. Can't hide our shame from him. But it's also a positive thing if you're a believer struggling to be faithful. Perhaps you are fighting a particular temptation and no one else knows about it, but it's a real struggle and a real fight for you. Or perhaps you are really struggling 
not to keep your head down and your mouth shut, but to speak up for Jesus. And it's been a real struggle for you, but you finally, through prayer and encouragement from other people, you've finally spoken up and said something to your friends to identify yourself as a Christian and commend Christ to other people. Perhaps no one else knows about those struggles. Jesus sees. He sees. He sees everything. His eyes are blazing fire. His feet are like glowing bronze. This is an image, again, drawn from Daniel and the big image of the statue that he sees. Even today, we speak about people with feet of clay. And what you mean by that little phrase is taken from the Bible, but what we mean by that little phrase is that they're really admirable and worthy of our respect in some way, but at the same time, they've got some big, serious, fatal, critical flaws in their character. Jesus is not like that. He is perfect, trustworthy, stable, reliable. He has feet like glowing, perfect bronze. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. His words carry authority and power, but they also bring refreshment and life. He holds the seven stars in his hands. We'll come to those in a moment. Uh, He has a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Again, you're not meant to draw a picture of this, but... In Isaiah 11, God's words are described as being like a sword coming out of his mouth. His words can either be like a sword in that they they can wound or they can be like a scalpel in that they can cut out what is corrupt to bring healing. And so the words of Jesus will punish the, the wicked and will bring rescue for his people. And his face shines like the sun in all its brilliance. This, remember, is in the Middle East. Uh, Our sun is bright in the summertime, but in the Middle East, think blazing in its glory. You can't look upon it. You should avert your eyes, look down. In the same way, the glory and splendor of the Lord Jesus should cause us to avert our eyes, to look down, to bow before him such as his glory and splendor. Again, this is a, when you stop and think about it, this is a wonderfully encouraging vision that John is given to pass on to these struggling Christians. These Christians who have been intimidated and threatened by the Roman regime, um, threatened with imprisonment and death if they don't offer their incense and worship to the emperor, Here they're being reminded, look, there is a power and authority in the universe that dwarfs even the might of Rome. Stick with Jesus. Listen to him. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Trust him because he is the Lord of all. Listen to him for he is the Lord of all. I, I think C.S. Lewis captures something of the sense of this, uh, this picture with, uh, in a little section in The Lion, the Witch, uh, and the Wardrobe, 
where we're told of a conversation between the children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Some of you will remember it. Um, Is Aslan a man? Sorry. um, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver. Certainly not. Don't you know who the king of the beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And he's the king. Get the idea? Jesus is the one who's not safe. He is awesome in his glory. And yet he's good. And the king. Jesus is the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all. Second reason why we should listen to him is that he is the Lord of death. He is the Lord of death. I wonder, have you ever felt afraid or threatened by Jesus? I wonder if you ever felt afraid or threatened by Jesus? Because if that has never been your experience, then perhaps you haven't yet seen and realized who Jesus really is in his power and in his purity. I remember really clearly uh, in a church down in Dublin uh, where I heard a a young guy share his testimony. And he talked about growing up in in a housing estate uh, in Dublin, uh, been involved in petty crime, been involved with uh, a gang in that estate, uh, and how he was brought along to church, and all he, he confessed that all his previous conceptions and images in his head about Jesus came from Sunday school pictures that he had seen, where he, des- he described Jesus as uh, a guy with permed hair, blue eyes, who went around in a nighty, And I thought, a guy like that wouldn't last 10 minutes in this estate. And then he said, but then I came to understand who Jesus really is and that he's awesome. And that's the sense in which you're meant to get as you read through uh, this vision. You're meant to see that he is awesome. He is awesome. In verses 17 and 18, wonderfully, we get, in many ways, in a nutshell, the good news of of the Christian faith. You get the good news of the Christian faith in a nutshell. Verse 17 and 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is in his perfection and in his power and his purity. And his only response is to fall before him and to be absolutely filled with terror. But then we get this wonderful reply from the Lord Jesus. He placed his hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first 
and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. What we have, the good news of the Christian faith, is um, an answer to the big problem faced by every other religion in the world. The big problem faced by every religion in the world is how, if there is a perfect divine being out there, how is it possible that I could get connected with, with that perfect divine being? Because I'm corrupt and I am broken and I am selfish and I am petty. How, how can I, if, if I was to come to a perfect, awesome God, then surely there'd be a short circuit and I would be just destroyed Here's the answer. Here's the answer. The answer is there is a perfect, pure, powerful, divine being out there. But we can get connected to him because of Jesus. God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus and says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, your guilt is real. Your guilt is real but I've dealt with it. Come, come. Come to the Father and know forgiveness and healing and restoration and hope. That's what you can have. Because I died. I died. I took your penalty on the cross for you so that you might never have to be afraid again. It's a wonderful offer, isn't it? It's an an amazing offer that we, if you're at all self-aware with all our brokenness and all our selfishness, that we could be connected to God and experience forgiveness and restoration, healing and hope. But how do we know it's true? How do we know that offer is true? And then you get to verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. How can I know that that offer is real? And the answer here is you can know that offer is real because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. I think most of us are increasingly online shopping. I certainly see the attraction not having to go to the shop and barge my way through and queue up and all those things. You can just send yourself little little surprise presents in the post. It's great, isn't it? Uh, you sometimes even forget you ordered it, then it's a real surprise when it comes. Um, and then it, uh, the postman will arrive, or the parcel force guy or girl will arrive, and sometimes you've got a sign for it. You've got a sign for it. Proof that it's been delivered. Proof that it's been accepted. The resurrection, in, in, in many ways, is God signing off on salvation, proof that the payment has been received and accepted. The payment in blood offered at the cross has been accepted, confirming everything Jesus claimed and said about himself. How can we know that this wonderful offer is real? because of the resurrection. And if you're here this morning and you are still exploring the Christian faith, then the place to start, the place to start is look at the Christian claim 
of the resurrection. How is it possible Christians could believe that a guy could come back from the dead? And is there really evidence for that? If you want to me to give you a couple of resources to guide you in your exploration, I'd be more than happy to do that. But if you are a Christian here this morning, and you know this really happened, it's really true, then it's confirmation that this wonderful offer of forgiveness is available for you. But Jesus goes even further in verse 18. When he rose from the dead, when he burst, kicked open the door and burst out of the prison of death, when he escaped the clutches of death, as one Puritan writer puts it, he stopped at the gatehouse on the way out and took all the keys. Verse 18, he holds the keys of death and Hades. For us, death is a huge monster uh, that causes us to be terrified. But from Jesus' perspective, death is completely under his control. It's like a little dog that he has tamed. And so the big trump card for anyone that violently opposes Christians and their faith is the threat of death. But again, wonder, again, a wonderful vision to those Christians who are under real pressure, who are really been threatened with death, is that they can say to the might of Rome, do your worst, kill us, but you can't keep us there because my Lord has the keys of death and he will set me free, release me to be with him forever. Death, the threat of death need hold no more fear because you can know the Lord of death and have hope, real hope for the future. Why is this a voice worth listening to? Number one, because he's the Lord of all, the world ruler, the one to whom everyone will give, a, give an account. Second reason you should listen to him is he is the Lord of death. And last reason, and very briefly, he's the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the church, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Notice where John sees Jesus. He sees him walking among lampstands. Now again, that's going to make no sense to you whatsoever if you don't know your first part of your Bible. Lampstands. Where have lampstands popped up before? Again, if you know your Bible, you'll know that um, when God gave instructions for the tent that he would live in symbolically among his people, uh, the tent of meeting made by Moses, and, and later Solomon's temple, those two structures had very little furniture in them really. They just had an altar, um, a table, and a lampstand, a lampstand. A lampstand which was carved in the form of a tree. A picture of light and life. Light and life that come from the very presence of God. If you want to have light and life, you've got to come to God. And what wonderfully has been symbolized here is that if you in this world today want to know the light and life of God, 
It's found in the church. It's found in the church. The point here is that Jesus is with his church. He's pictured here dressed in a, in a, in a, a long robe with a golden sash. That's the uniform of a priest. Not only is Jesus pictured here as the, the great king with power and authority who rules the world, but he's also pictured as a tender priest caring for the lampstands. Going among the what did the priests do in the, in, in the temple? They were to make sure the lampstands were topped up with oil. If the flame was flickering and looked like it was going to go out, it was tended and cared for and caused to grow into burn into a bright flame again. Jesus, wonderfully here, is pictured as tending, uh, tending the lampstands, tending his church, strengthening, sustaining, comforting, protecting his church. It, may, it certainly felt for them, the first readers of this book, and no doubt feels for you and me at times that we are completely on our own that we, we don't have anyone around us when we're going about our business during the week. We don't have anyone or very few around us who share our beliefs and want to live the same way we want to live. It's very easy for us to feel on our own. But you're not on your own. You're never on your own. The Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, is with every single one of us to comfort, strengthen reassure, fan into flame your witness for him. We're then told about these seven stars, seven stars. Now, here's, here's my analysis on these seven stars. I don't know, right? That's finally, but here, before I finally say I don't know, there's a couple of options. There's a couple of options. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. What does that mean? Well, angel could just mean, it's the same word, it could just mean messenger. It could mean the missionary or the senior pastor in the church. Could be a reference to them, but nowhere else in the book does the word angel, is the word angel used that way. Uh, so more than likely, it seems that in heaven, there is an angelic representative for a local church. More, ask me any more questions than that. I don't, I don't know. But the point is clear. The church, individual local congregations of God's people are never out of Jesus' sight and never out of his thoughts. That's, the, that's what's clear here, is that the local church is never out of Jesus' sight and never out of his thoughts. So we do not have to be afraid. We do not have to be afraid. And so in the letters that are going to follow, where we listen to the words of Jesus. Why should you take any heed at all? Why bother? Why listen? Why are we carving out time to do this on a Sunday? Because he is the one worth listening to. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord over death. He's the Lord of the church. And he is worthy of your obedience and worthy of our worship. You see, there are lots of voices out there that say, look out for number one. There's lots of voices out, say, out there that, that say, um, you haven't lived until you've experienced this thing. 
look, I know your conscience is bothering you, but there's lots of money that could be made here if you do that. Uh, there's lots of voices out there that say, look, it doesn't matter. Everyone else is doing it. Just join in. There's so many voices that we're surrounded by. But here is the voice that you should listen to. Here is the voice that you should heed. Here's the voice of one you should worship because he is the Lord of all, the Lord over death, and the Lord of the church. And let's listen to him. Before we celebrate communion together, uh, we're going to sing. We're going to respond uh, by singing. I think that's the, the right response this morning. We should sing our praise to the Lord Jesus.